Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the DXM podcast. I am your host, Colborn Bell, and we are live today with artist Connie Bakshi. Connie, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we are super, super honored to have you, and we are going to go on this journey in the same place uh, we start every time, which is giving you a bit of space to talk about yourself, your practice, and how you came to be in crypto art and NFTs. Sure. Um, you know, I'll start with my journey into art, uh, which is actually stemming from a, a complicated relationship with language. Um, you know, I, I grew up in an immigrant household with uh, two first languages, English and Taiwanese. And, you know, when you live between words and worlds, there's, there's a lot that goes unspoken. Um, and so that could be things that go on in the household or outside of it. Um, so I think for a lot of my, my early life, I really, I was a quiet kid. I didn't have a lot to say, but mostly because I, I just didn't have the words to express um, a lot of the experiences I was going through. Um, but, you know, it actually wasn't until I uh, started out as a classical pianist and then ultimately as a biomedical engineer working in neuroscience um, where I was trying to understand the development of language in the brain um, that ultimately I, um, I started finding ways to express these invisible narratives. Um, but really it was when I got my hands on AI that I, I found this vernacular to talk about the invisible experiences um, that are they're so unique to subjective, you know, a subjective life, um, and that typically go unsaid and unseen. Um, and you know, it's ironic because so much of my AI process in an interface that's so text-driven is one that comes down to codifying and recodifying language itself to try to unearth these um, these hidden narratives um, and expressions. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I found my way into Web3 and the crypto art scene really from a logistical standpoint um, first, because I mean, inherently, um, you know, the outputs that you're getting it from AI are digitally native. Um, and, you know, I'd spent some time in the New York art scene. Um, you know, I, I came out of the New Museum's New Ink Incubator um, and was really seeing this issue with finding a place for digital art, for it to be shown, um, really for it to just be shown and seen. Um, and so, you know, I, I kind of took my first foray into the NFT scene just as a way to get my work out there. But then as I, as I just did more research and just tried to wrap my head around what the crypto scene, crypto art scene was really about, you know, it, I saw this world that was, or an ecosystem that was nascent and emerging. And um, there was just so much talk about how, um, you know, we, we had this chance to build something new, right? Mm -hmm. And we didn't want to necessarily carry over these behavioral economics and ideologies from legacy capitalism um, into a space like this, that, that we have so much control over, right? Um, and so, you know, when I started seeing work of some of the, the OGs like Rhea Myers and, and Kevin Abosh and what they were doing to kind of talk about these, these issues, 
um, I realized, oh my gosh, this is this is the place I want to be because so much of my the, the themes in my work, like this is exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so really, that's that's kind of how I, I found my way in, into the scene and, and really jived with it. I love that. Um, <laughs> I want to, before we dive into kind of where we are in that journey, I'd love to talk about more of the emergent themes in, in your practice, uh, the, the conversations between, between you and the technology, uh, the latent spaces that you're looking to explore, uh, and then maybe we can tie it in kind of to the broader crypto art conversation, if that's okay. I'd love that. That's great. Um, I, you know, when I first started working with AI to kind of give you some context, um, uh, you know, I was introduced to the technology by a friend of mine named Phil Boshua, who at the time had his hands on some of the most cutting edge models between the conversational models and a lot of the image synthesis models. Um, this is probably back in early 2021. And, um, you know, he, he at the time, uh, I think we were in kind of still in pandemic mode. Um, and, uh, you know, I was kind of thinking about my practice and where I wanted to take it in a kind of come to Jesus moment that we all had. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, I. He, he essentially said, you know what, um, let me put all my tools in your hands. I want you to just play and see where you go with it. Um, and what was really interesting was, you know, at first I, I was kind of, I, I was going at it from a lot of different approaches um, and just trying to get some specificity out of the machine uh, and its responses. But ultimately, I found I had to scrap all, scrap all my conceptions of what my relationship to the machine is and could be. And I essentially embarked on a really intimate relationship with AI um, between these conversational models and these image synthesis models. That's fascinating. I am, you know, how, how do you feel about kind of to me, it feels like there's almost an, an AI arms race going on. I've seen like a lot of AI artists in the beginning almost drop out because they don't feel like they have access to the latest models or the latest technologies. Everything is progressing so incredibly fast. I'm curious how you as an AI artist perceive this and are kind of dealing with that. You know, arms race is a really good way to put it. <laughs> I feel like it's a it's a global race to to get to the the tip of the spear when it comes to the technology. Yeah. But what I've found, you know, I, certainly I had access uh, to some of the earliest models in a way that a lot of artists didn't. But I found that I'm more, uh, more recently playing around in things like Midjourney and open source models, mm. stable diffusion, um, because they they have so many different things to offer, you know. And and really for me, it's not about the novel technology itself, it's about what, you know, what are the conceptual themes that I'm exploring at the time? What are the questions that I'm asking? And what are the right tools to address those? Mm. Um, you know, certainly we all know the McLuhanism, the, the medium is the message, but I also think the message is the message. Um, <laughs> and really when you're working with AI, you have to understand first, like how to, how to communicate with the machine to get a, a very unique conversation going. Um, but also you just have to know what you, what you want to say. 
What are your thoughts on how um, these tools are opening up more broadly to people to be able to explore those feelings that they haven't been able to put words to? I, you know, I've talked to a lot of other AI artists. Um, I mean, obviously there's there's quite a bit these days, um, but I've I've gotten some really amazing feedback from people who say that one, it's opened up a new mode of expression for them because um, there's, you know, depending on what tool they're using, maybe they're just using maybe they're using Midjourney, right? And they're they're eking out these variations and these these reiterations. Um, and then suddenly they see an image that just resonates with them at a gut response. And they're like, oh, that's what I was trying to say. And there's something very beautiful about that feedback loop that comes out of that conversational process. And I'll, I'll keep reiterating like feedback and conversation because I think that's crucial. Um, and they're discovering things about themselves that they hadn't even necessarily thought about, but only emerged from the process. So I think that's that's a very unique, um, you know, asset and value that comes out of working with these technologies. I feel it is almost like Freuding and, and delving into the subconscious and so much of like the the iterative again, like feedback that you are getting almost from like a, a Rorschachian test. Um, it, There's certainly an element of Rorschach, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, and like dreamscaping and exploring. Uh, I mean, for people to be able to begin to like put concrete images and synthesize their imagination and all of these things, it's totally, totally new territory. And it is wonderfully fascinating to just, I think, be on the edge of this space. Um, I'm curious how this also begins to bleed into perhaps the way you would hope for people to be maybe having metaverse experiences or, or digital experiences online. Um, and if there is a way to perhaps open it up to something that is uh, bigger than just the individual communicating with the machine. Absolutely. Um, something that I've been thinking about and talking about a little um, pretty recently is, you know, thinking of, all right, let's see, we, we get these outputs from the machine and that are predominantly visual, right? Uh, but we're living in a context um, where this kind of art is being med mediated by a flat 2D digital screen. Mm. Um, and the phrase that's been kind of circula circ uh, circling around in my brain is digital homunculus. Mm. Um, and this idea that, okay, what's funny, what's interesting about AI is that it's subject to the knowledge and experiences and memories that we've documented and imbued the machine and its data sets with, right? Um, but it does not have the sensory processors to understand tactile, the tactility of things like smell. And even, I, I, I mean, certainly there's some um, generative music that's now going into AI, but a sound, smell, taste. So now when we're, when we're living in either in the metaverse or even just within a digital screen, how are our cognitive processes geared for the senses now being reshaped by this, by this new kind of mediation? Um, and really, I think, you know, it, it's a really fascinating um, study to just see how AI perceives these senses and expresses them. Because I, I think 
I mean, it's living in a black box or in a dark room and we're just essentially sending it, you know, the film and the, and the chemicals and the stuff it needs to process, but it never experiences these on its own. Mm. Um, so I, I think I'd love to see how the, the tactility and the, the visceral experience of, of being human um, and being a physical entity starts to now translate into a digital experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course it makes sense. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, I, of course, uh, I don't know how much work you've done in VR, but, you know, that was always some of the, the strangest experiences. Like you see the person and they have like, you know, a face, but you can't like read the emotion and you reach out and you just like kind of go through them. There, There is none of that uh, tactile nature, but you can see and hear them and it is you know it is i think uh more empathetic than kind of just the flat screen that we've all grown so accustomed to but how we really do continue to like merge closer and get closer to ourselves and one another through uh through all of this augmentation is is well it's it's a bit of a cybernetic playground <laughs> it is, but it really speaks to how we're now uh, how we're now um, forming um, emotional intimacy, right? Mm. Not only with ourselves, but with each other. Mm. Um, and I, I think, well, that's I, I'd love to see how that kind of emerges. Yeah, and I think this is actually an interesting segue because I I don't know, but I think we might have similar thoughts on like Web two and capitalism and how this could be <laughs> like a new open playground to explore uh, something else. So maybe I'll start and I'll just yeah. say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's not really a question there, but I, I'll start and just say like in the beginning, it was full of these like wonderful visionaries, luminaries, um, people that really wanted something different that saw so much promise in the technology and I think over the past two and a half, three years, it's really just been co-opted, beaten down, like reduced into uh, the like purest extractive capitalist individualist form that it almost could take. And I think we're seeing almost the, the death kneel of it. And maybe I guess like the question now is one, where does it go? And is there anything like new and promising at this point that can es escape like capital's reach? Yeah, I, you know, I think a, a lot about um, how our technologies are incorporated in these corporate and capitalist infrastructures. And, uh, you know, specifically with AI, I'm seeing like so much of what drives these, the dynamics, um, the economic dynamics is, uh, I mean, we always talk about the algo in, in very vague terms, right? The Twitter algo, um, these different predictive algorithms that are ultimately co-opting a lot of our decisions and taking our agency away from us. Um, and, you know, forgive me if I, uh, before I go down this road, forgive me if I sound like I'm drinking the Kool-Aid of AI and <laughs> algorithm technology. That's, well, that's not what I'm that's presumed, <laughs> you know, that's presumed. 
Okay, fine. I'm drinking the Right. Um, okay, so this idea of predictive algorithms. I mean, in the AI space, this is something that's been harped, harped upon for years now, since kind of the emergence of the technology. But what I'd love to kind of pose is this idea that the technologies in and of themselves are not necessarily flawed. I mean, the processing, the processes of the technology are not necessarily flawed, but it's how they're being utilized. And I'm thinking, if we start thinking about um, less about turning the gaze of the machine towards prediction and more about thinking about them in as perceptual algorithms where it's about understanding our own complexity and the complexity of our infrastructures and really finding ways to highlight our blind spots. Mm. Um, I think that's an interesting start, starting point um, for how we might start to shift the needle. Um, but then also for me, I'm, I'm thinking about things like, oh, this, there's a trope of a phrase that I, I hate to use, but cognitive bias Mm-hmm. You know, outside of these systems, we are still influenced by invisible ideologies that are oftentimes passed down through generations, right? Um, and that's why a lot of my my work actually is, even though I, I talk about, um, I, I, I look at these systems with a critical eye, I'm actually, look, I, I frame my work in uh, the form of lore and ritual, because these are things, for instance, that through repetition and through time have originally, you know, they were originally deemed acceptable and they imbe- they were imbued with values that were, you know, considered worth repeating, right? But there's a point where generations down the line, there these values essentially become stale and stagnant and aren't relevant to our times and the complexity of the world around us. Um, so I think really understanding not the technology's bias, not just the technology's bias, but our own biases and deconstructing those, I think we can start looking forward with a much more realistic perspective and one that's much more inclusive and is that acknowledges um, you know the force and, and understands the forces and the powers and the systems that are shaping us, you know. Ooh, a lot there to unpack. I, again, in those three years, saw a ton of also cultural and like tradition degradation, the inability to pass down things like if you made a big sale, like go support other artists that were, you know, that kind of like you want to lift up as well. And, uh, you know, there was like a sense of decorum and respect and now it just seems like everything all at once, like digital garbage everywhere, just create, consume. Um, And that was tough to watch. So I, I sit back and I wonder how it can be rebuilt, but I'm curious to you, what are of course, kind of the positive standout aspects of this technology and how might it be you know, more ethically or thoughtfully incorporated into uh, where you would like to see this go? You mean blockchain technologies or AI technologies? Blockchain. I was speaking, yeah, more blockchain. Um, I think both are interesting. Well, you know, the blockchain itself is an, an 
the social dynamics are inherently linked to not legal contracts. I mean, smart contracts, not legal, but social contracts, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I've started seeing, you know, promising, um, you know, counters to that. Um, uh, let's say, for instance, operator, you know, Deja and Anya's yeah. work. Um, let me, I think it was, let me check with the wife. Um, that was yeah. one where it was kind of upending the notion of the smart contract. Um, but, you know, I, I think outside outside of the contract, it, you have to look at it systemically, right? And it, it's not just about individuals, I think, individuals incorporating a specific practice, but it's about how can you galvanize and gather multiple stakeholders across the strata of Web3 to enact something that's much more systemic. Um, and I think we just have to kind of think bigger about who are the allies and the strategic partners that we can get in place to make bigger moves and make more of an impact. It's not a singular decision. Yeah. I like that a lot. I uh, had really no traditional art world experience. I did not understand the infrastructure of the traditional art world. Um, but as I kind of came into this space, I really saw how people uh, were hurt really by not having that infrastructure that almost like slows the process down, that draws the art out, that has different points of like discussion and validation and storytelling to help them lift up their story. Uh, and that is something that, you know, exists outside of what is that serotonin hit attention economy. Um, yes. and I think is exceptionally valuable. So I think you're right, you know, going out, finding those partners, finding those institutions, building coalitions, like even just having some sort of system other than, you know, utter reliance on just that, that smart contract. And I have to say, you know, uh, I was recently part of an event and exhibition called FemGen that was in Art Basel, Miami. And this was, um, this came out of a, a partnership between Vertical Crypto Art, you know, Nicole App, and uh, Right Click Save with Alex Esterick, but also Art Blocks. Um, and what was really fascinating about that experience was that it was looking at how, you know, women in the generative art space just simply are not banking the same market value as men in the space. And you can see the numbers, they're transparent, they're right there on the ledger. Yeah. Um, but the entire exhibition and event was, uh, is it was about, you know, let's look at this problem systemically. First, let's, let's in, the, in the creation of this event, let's gather together the right partners who believe in committing to lifting up this marginalized demographic, right? But then it also became about, okay, how can we centralize these, these women, these key women in the generative art space now sh display the, their work, you know, and, and allow them to speak and take the stage so the world can ultimately see that this group and their work has such undeniable value. Um, and, you know, I'm still getting a lot of feedback from the event about how incredibly impactful it was, not only for the artists and the organizers, but for people who experienced it, you know, firsthand, where it didn't even occur to them that, you know, this was this was an issue, you know. Yeah. 
So I, I think that's kind of one of the, the sparks of promise I've seen in the space that utilizes this kind of strategy. And I know you just, I think, did a show with Vellum. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I have to shout out Vellum, who uh, almost a year ago now, I went to their space and they were showing uh, uh, women, an exhibition on women and, and creative coding. That was just exceptional. Um, artists who so, code, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that. artists who code, that was a cool show. Lindsay, um, Alice, you know, they've, they've really built up a dynamic community of digital artists around their gallery, um, but they're also very, I think they're very committed to lifting up voices and art um, that just isn't necessarily on a global radar, you know? Yeah. Um, and that, that particular show uh, that I was part of was called Next Gen LA, mm -hmm. um, which was about looking at emerging artists coming out, digital artists coming out of LA. And, you know, I, I was personally floored by the, the, the other talent in the room. And I, I was like, how, how could I not know about you guys? You know, <laughs> um, and the fact that um, Vellum and, uh, oh, and of course, so Cinzi and uh, Jesse Damiani had curated that show, but they were also incredibly instrumental in drumming up support and, and getting traffic into it so that more eyes could see um, the amazing art coming out of these artists. But yeah, so yes, Vellum, love them. Like they're incredible in everything that they do. So I, I think we're on the same page there. Yeah, yeah. Some, <laughs> some good names are tossing out for people. Um, yeah. Check them out. They're in LA and uh, yeah. Um, so maybe we can uh, switch the question now over to kind of broader implications for AI in kind of these mm -hmm. systemic designs and how you think people can, again, just like begin to ethically and, and uh, incorporate these tools into their lives. I think the, the big catchphrase um, in AI right now is chat GPT. Um, and I, I think it's, it's, it, it's a model, conversational model that certainly boasts incredible natural language processing that's very humanistic and the catalog of information it references is also incredible um, but you know in so many of these conversations i'm seeing um, people are still looking at it from a q a standpoint and i think that's they're you know they're they're looking at chat gpt and these conversational models as if they're doing a google search you know and, and in a lot of ways i, I think looking back at even web one, like Google searches have essentially are, are a little bit mind numbing over time. Um, I mean, you, you, you're essentially like putting in these queries and you're getting a response and you're accepting them as fact, right? Sure. Um, and I think that's, that's a possible, not to start with something cynical, but that's a possible danger that I think we can encounter with um, tools like chat GPT. But I think one of the incredible promises of it is that, you know, now having this instantaneous connection with these broader knowledge bases, hmm. can we start to think at a higher level, right? Hmm. Um, can we can we think beyond information? Can we uh, and start thinking about, you know, how do we not only perceive but process and separate truth from fiction. Um, 
And I mean, I think this is a similar question that was raised when deep fakes started coming out, right? Um, but I, I think this is the, the mindfulness that I'm hoping these kinds of technologies will start to trigger. You know, can people move beyond being fed information and fed responses and instead look back and question the responses themselves? Does that make sense? It does make sense, yeah. I think where it begins to scare me a bit is, uh, I, you know, what I found in the early crypto art community that really excited me was just the, um, the amount of just questions, right? Um, and the ability and the art that was like questioning. And um, I loved like the rebellious spirit of it. it. It goes back through all of crypto, right? If nobody had devised an alternative currency system to the one, well, then you have to use the one. Uh, so, you know, what scares me about ChatGPT is that there is no ability to choose. You're just given something, right? And theoretically, everybody would almost be presented the, the same thing, uh, which I, I don't know. I just get nervous when people continue to export like critical thinking to a machine <laughs> and critical thinking skills. Uh, yeah. I think that's, that's definitely a, a fair phobia. Um, I think I'm, I'm a little bit personally biased myself because every time I encounter a new model, um, whether it be conversational or image-based, like I'm essentially finding ways to hack the language to give me mm. incredibly anomalous responses because it's the mm -hmm. anomalies that say much more about the inner workings of the machine and its processes and the data sets than anything else. So in a lot of ways, I think there is a certain rebellion in how you interact with the machine. And for me, my rebellion is in finding the anomalies. Is that in a bit of a, like a, you know, a bit of a cyberpunk tradition? <laughs> I, I wish I, I was, I was so cool. Um, <laughs> but no, um, I think once again, it just goes back to language. You know, I'm, you yeah. know, I'm, I'm early on, I was playing around with, you know, the phrases, abstractions of language and words and playing around with double entendre and um, hmm. innuendo in a way that the machine just, in a way, it, it kind of started to stutter and couldn't figure out what specific definition to give me. So it kind of gave me something in between. And that was kind of magical. Um, hmm. And that now I'm not, I'm not putting in specific queries or prescriptive language. I'm always playing in abstraction. I'm actually using a lot of poetry these days and like looking at the structure of those, um, those kinds of uh, that form to once again, find ways to recodify the language that I'm putting into the machine. So I, I think what's so interesting that the AI models are you know, so reliant on text-based interfaces. Language is now the means by which we can hack the system. You know, and I, I find it a little ironic, um, but that language and words have historically uh, kind of been the site of <laughs> hegemonic control, you know? I, I wanted to especially in the art world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean I wanted to explore this with you because it seems that like the default language is English, right? And and I know you yeah. talk about this, right? The difference between like Taiwanese and English and what can be expressed and what like has been expressed and 
I'm of course super fascinated. Well, like maybe we can move beyond words and we can start to communicate with images and we can start to communicate more, I guess, symbolically. Uh, and I mean, are you finding that there are limitations or that there is a constraint that like English being the predominant language of usage for these models, I presume is, is having? Uh, I mean, yeah, that's that's certainly problematic, but I will say that, like, let's even GPT, GPT-3, um, they started incorporating a lot more global languages. It's certainly not comprehensive. Um, I've spoken with friends who um, have used their native languages to integrate with image synthesis and uh, and conversational models, and they're they're getting very different things, too. Mm. Um which is interesting. And I feel like at some point I'm going to have to collaborate with one of my friends um, and just look at these, kind of do a side-by-side -side comparison of the process, the, the outputs based on how the language is structured and is being input. Um, but I will say my process also does incorporate um, what you were talking about, uh, you know, using images um, as kind of a basis. You know, you can certainly feed the, uh, your own images into custom data sets that are then incorporated um, in the process. And but I find that I, you know, just depending on the project, sometimes I may, um, you know, you play around with recursion where I'm putting in, like my, starting with my own initial image, you know, uh, then playing with text to see how it becomes manipulated and then maybe go through multiple variations before I, I reach kind of an end point, um, an end image where I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Okay, well, let's continue this conversation. Let me use that now as the initial image and change up the text. You know, it, it becomes a really fun recursive process that is about, isn't simply about back and forth on a like singular text prompt, singular image, but one that starts incorporating more lenses, so to speak. Wild. How, <laughs> how do you respond? I mean, look, I, this whole conversation, I think this isn't really a question, but this whole conversation is a response to, and I'm sure you felt this a bunch, uh, you know, are, is AI art art? Um, and, you know, I, I think the answer always is, you know, anything that is worthy of exploring creatively and curious with an open mind is art. Um, why do you think people are scared? I think with every, I mean, people are always scared with every new thing that comes out. I think, <laughs> I, I talked to my I talked to my parents and people of their generation, and I, I think they've still got Skynet and Terminator in their minds as far as like any kind of neural networks or machine intelligences um, is concerned. But I mean, even looking at like when the web first emerged, like look at Web One, like people were scared of that because they were thinking that it would demolish the things that they they held dear. Um, to be the, fair, kind of did. <laughs> it did. I, I yeah. think a lot of this, um, there was a lot of good that came out of, there's a lot of good that comes out of these evolutionary processes. And it always forces us to kind of collectively reevaluate these things exactly, these values and these ideologies that we hold dear. Yeah. Um, 
so it's, yeah, it's, I think it's a, people will always be scared. Um, but as these, these technologies become much more prevalent and pervasive, um, there, there hopefully will be more benefits that abound. So I think that's kind of been, that's definitely been thematic, right? We have this idea of like the loss of subculture, kind of this transitioning into more of this like connected oneness. Uh, and I, and I think that is probably what is fearful for people, right? Like the loss of that very local group identity and having to kind of ascend into more of this global collective identity, um, and that was That's also like very exciting for me because capitalism purports like the individual in that system, but yeah. crypto art in the beginning was very much about like the collective and, and supporting the, the community and uh, you know, the people that supported you lifting them up alongside you. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, that kind of speaks to some broader themes that are going on in the technology space about, you know, th there's really, there's the question of now, what does it mean to be human? And what, and then on the other hand, what does it mean to be post-human? I mean, I think we're still kind of in the transhuman phase where we're figuring out where we're headed. Hmm. Um, but when it comes to the question, what does it mean to be human? I, I hold um, pretty staunchly that it is about a search for autonomy and agency um, in, you know, in this in, in light of perceptions of things that might, you know, empower or diminish that, you know, that, mm -hmm. that individualism. But I, you know, when you think about the question, what does it mean to be post-human? You know, I'm, I'm actually thinking about, you know, the word sentience, mm -hmm. once again, speaking to this mindfulness and awareness that isn't necessarily about negating individual opinion and thought and choice, but it's one that's, certainly more aware of the consequences and ripple effect that one's choices make. Powerful. <laughs> it's, you know, we're, we're at time. This is, uh, I, I, uh, I think it's a wonderful synthesis of the conversation because it is so multidimensional and that like the individuals are individuals are continuing to be empowered through these technologies, blockchain, AI, um, but they are kind of like coming to terms with the collective, right? And they are able to begin to experience more and they are being kind of lifted up on a quicker, quicker evolutionary whatever transhuman narrative, right? All of us just being open to kind of like figuring it out. Uh, and it is just a wonderful, fascinating time. And I really just like, thank you for the time and your insights. You've made me think a lot. I'm so glad. Um, no, thank you. And thank you for such probing questions. They've, they've certainly had, my mind is now spinning and we'll continue to. <laughs> um, well, yeah, hopefully we can spin some other people out as well. <laughs> um, the last word is yours. Uh, oh. Please let people know where they can find you and oh, uh, yeah. anything else you might want to share. Sure. I'll, I'll just keep it logistical. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Connie Bakshi. Just 
one word, C-O-N-N-I-E-B-A-K-S-H-I. Same on Instagram uh, for some more long form writing. Um, and of course, there's my link tree in both. So if you want to find out a little bit more about me, my work, uh, what's out there um, with my name attached to it, feel free to click away. All right. So <laughs> now we say goodbye. I am Colborn Bell. I was joined by artist Connie Bakshi. Uh, shout out to Dementi for putting us together. And it's been a real pleasure. So thank you so much. Thank you. Well, Bye, everyone. Catch you later. Breaking news. Breaking news.